Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, I'm Kathy Gonzora, host of History of the 90s. This week, I have something very special for you to listen to. It's a story from a show that I think you will really like. It's called 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. Here's their host, Dallas Taylor. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. Seinfeld is one of the most successful sitcoms of all time. During the nine years that it ran, Seinfeld had millions of viewers. It won 10 Emmys, three Golden Globes, and its cast have become superstars. Seinfeld ended over 20 years ago, but it's still very much alive. It has a huge obsessive fan base, and it still gets referenced all the time. Its theme song that we're hearing right now was unlike any theme song that came before it or has come after. And there's a pretty interesting backstory that you probably don't know behind that wacky slap bass. But before we get into it, I need to tell you about my friend Steve. My name's Steve Lack, and I am a post-production audio mixer and sound designer. Steve and I worked together years ago when we were both sound designers at the Discovery Channel. I consider Dallas one of my best friends. I really love Dallas. We were both the night shift guys, and we both come in around 6 o'clock. Night shift is generally unsupervised, so you come in, you get your assignments, you work on your mixes, you work on your work, and then when you feel like taking a break, you take a break. To give you a picture of what Steve's like, he's the type of person who's lived a hundred different lives. Like the time he was a circus drummer and got into a fistfight with a clown. Or the time he dropped everything and moved to Trinidad. Or the time he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing in a parking garage that collapsed hours later in the Northridge earthquake. Yeah, Steve is easily one of my favorite people in the world. So I would wander over to his suite, or he would wander over to my suite, and, uh, we would talk politics or the events of the day or sound design or whatever, but we got to be pretty good friends because we had several hours of quiet time and night where we could just hang out and chat. During one of those random late nights, Steve told me about the time he worked on Seinfeld. Wait, what? So apparently in the late 80s and early 90s, he had been an assistant to a TV composer named Jonathan Wolf. When I first moved to LA, I was 17 years old. And that's Jonathan. He's composed the music for 75 TV shows, including Will and Grace, Married with Children, and Who's the Boss? But no one becomes a major TV composer overnight. Jonathan spent his first decade in L.A. doing musical odd jobs and making connections. The studios were happy to have me. They treated me like a Swiss Army multi-purpose utility tool for musical chores because I had good training in a wide range of fields. But after 10 years, Jonathan was ready for a change. I decided that I no longer wanted to continue having the telephone dictate to me where I was going to work each day and what I was going to do when I got there. So I declared myself a composer. Jonathan wrote letters to all of his Hollywood contacts. He thanked them for their support, but asked them to stop sending him these low-level musical jobs. Instead, he wanted to compose original music. This was a huge risk. It's like an actor who had only ever had bit parts deciding that they'll only accept lead roles from now on. Jonathan knew he might regret it, but he mailed those letters anyway. And I held my breath. I may have just nuked the last 10 years of my life. 
But when those letters started arriving at their destinations all over Hollywood, people just shrugged and said, well, that's too bad. He's a good utility guy. And then they started throwing me little writing assignments, songwriting assignments for their movies and scoring assignments. And that is how my composing career began. This is around the time that Steve got hooked up with Jonathan. He landed Who's the Boss, and he was doing some other after-school specials and starting to really take off as a TV composer, and he was looking for somebody to help out with MIDI tech, engineering, some orchestration and transcriptions, setting up gear and all that stuff. I wore many hats. Gradually, more and more jobs started coming in. We were doing Who's the Boss. We did some Who's the Boss spinoff shows, some other sitcoms. But getting connected with Jerry Seinfeld happened almost by chance. Turns out, in real life, Jerry has a best friend named George. It's George Wallace, the comedian. You know what makes me sick? People saying stupid stuff. I got off the airplane today, a man said to me, my wife gonna die when I tell I saw you. I said, well, don't tell her. George Wallace and I have been buddies for a long, long time. And when Jerry Seinfeld confided to his best friend, George Wallace, that he was having trouble with the music for his new show, Wallace said, hey, call my buddy Wolf. And so I got a phone call from Jerry Seinfeld. He described to me a sound design issue. He told me that the music for his new show, which at the time was called The Seinfeld Chronicles, the opening credits for that show would be Jerry standing in front of a, an audience. He tells jokes. Oscar Mayer is expanding his little area. It's not little anymore, is it? Oscar Mayer is now a huge, monstrous place. That area, that whole section there, keeps getting bigger. And for him, it's not easy to come up with new products. You realize for Oscar Mayer to come up with a new product, he has to invent meat. Folks, there is no olive loaf animal, as far as I know. People laugh. That's the opening credits. And he wanted music to go with it. And I told him right away, that sounds like an audio conflict, because what we really need to hear is you telling jokes and people laughing. You see, TV theme music leading into Seinfeld were these epic, belting, lyrical odes. Like Golden Girls, A-Team, Family Ties, Dukes of Hazard, or my personal favorite as an 80s kid, Transformers. All of these theme songs were designed to play all by themselves, not as a device to prop up dialogue. Theme music in the late 80s on TV was melodic. A lot of sassy saxophones. Silly lyrics. I'm guilty of creating a lot of that kind of music. But it was not going to work in this case. So Jonathan pitched this crazy idea. Instead of making a traditional theme song with verses and a catchy chorus, he would build the music around Jerry's stand-up bits. So I pitched to Jerry, how about this? How about we treat your human voice as the melody of the Seinfeld theme. Every time you do a different monologue will be a variation on the theme. My job, Jerry, will be to 
accompany you in a way that works well with your human voice but does not interfere with the audio of you telling jokes. For example, the human organic nature of your human voice might go well with the human organic nature of my human lips, tongue, finger snaps, like this. And I had his attention because that was music from Mars in the late 80s. Sampling was in its infancy. And he said, how's that work? And I said, come on over. Jonathan had to prove that he could make music that was memorable and fun, but didn't distract from Jerry's stand-up. I threw it up against one of his monologues. He liked what I showed him. He held the phone up to the speakers so that Larry David could hear it over the phone. Larry liked it. That was, at that time, the entire approval process for the Seinfeld theme. Unfortunately, the network was less impressed. There was a meeting where they kind of laid out some conditions, and the first thing on the list was music. The network executives had some major concerns. What's up with the music? What is that sound? What's with the popping? And what instrument is that? Can we not afford real music? It's distracting. It's weird. It's annoying. When he said annoying, Larry David perked up. Larry, as you may know, likes to be annoying. So uh, I turned to our boss and huddled with him and Larry and Jerry and said, look, guys, I'll change the music. It's not a big deal. Larry David would have none of it. He just started yelling at me. He says, what do you mean? What do you mean, Wolf? Get out. You're done here. Out. And I left the meeting because Larry David had thrown me out for suggesting that maybe we would change the music. And obviously, Larry hung tight on the music and the music stayed in the picture. He's the hero of that story. So what made up this so-called annoying music? Let's break it down to its essential parts. First up is that iconic slap bass. At the time, slap bass was an element of funk music buried in the mix. It had not yet enjoyed celebrity status as a solo instrument. I brought it forward, illuminated it, put it hot in the mix, and it sounded kind of quirky. Interestingly, these bass lines weren't played on a real bass. Jonathan actually played them on a keyboard controller that could trigger different samples, including bass sounds. It was about at that time that sampling was becoming really usable, and I used Seinfeld as a proving ground for that bleeding-edge technology. To get the sound for the original Seinfeld bass, Jonathan and Steve took bass patches from two different devices and blended them together. The actual original bass sound was a Roland D550 popper and Korg M1 slap bass. I think he started out with the M1 and felt like it wasn't cutting enough. So then we added that D550 popper in there, which had kind of more of an edge to it. And what I would do is I would kind of get a balance between these two synths while he was playing until we kind of just nailed exactly the right sound. The bass line of Seinfeld 
the actual music of it. So basic, so simple. It did not require four beats to a bar, did not require meter at all to hold water. I could stop and start the bass to make allowance for the timings of his jokes and his punchlines and the people laughing. (laughs) Then there are those organic sounds that Jonathan mentioned. Jonathan recorded these noises himself using his fingers and mouth. Then he mapped them to his keyboard so he could play them on the fly. Combine that with a simple shaker. And these noises served as the rhythmic backbone of the Seinfeld theme. Even the tempo was set around Jerry's comedic timing. I watched Jerry's stand-up comedy, and I noticed that he has a lyric sensibility about the way he delivers his lines, the way he moves, his choreography, his facial expressions move, and there was a meter to it that I put different clocks on. And finally, I settled in on... About 110. I don't think people think of their office as a workplace. I think they think of it as a stationery store with Danish. You know what I mean? You want to get your pastry, your envelopes, your supplies, your toilet paper, six cups of coffee, and you go home. And that seemed to work well with the metrics of Jerry's comedy. And so that became the tempo of the Seinfeld theme in general. A few other musical elements were used to emphasize punchlines and other key moments. There was some horns. In vaudeville, when someone told a joke, there'd be a rim shot. Well, my music kind of served the oral space of that. So the horns would accentuate the end of jokes and the end of the monologue itself. Let's listen to the opening monologue from the episode The Mango. Notice how the musical elements ebb and flow to match Jerry's delivery. How about that seedless watermelon? What an invention. Scientists are working on this. I mean, other scientists devote their lives to fighting cancer, AIDS, heart disease. These guys go, no, I'm focusing on melon. (laughs) Oh, sure, thousands of people are dying needlessly, but this, that's got to (laughs) stop. Ever try and pick a wet one up off the floor? It's almost impossible. I'm devoting my life to that. So I guess if they can get rid of the seeds, the rind is going next. What do we need that for? Get rid of the rind. They're not going to stop until they're making in the ground, ready-to-eat fruit cups, growing right out of the ground. The idea of having to recreate a recording of the theme every episode was a new concept. I treated it like Lego music. These were elements that could be modularly manipulated to fit the individual timings and the overall length of each monologue. I knew that if this show went anywhere, I was going to have to recreate music bespoke for each monologue. And so he did. To score an episode, Jonathan would watch and rewatch every scene, playing along on his keyboard to what was happening on screen. They had to be done to picture so that the timings would be right. And so that I could maybe use some of his choreography. Sometimes he would do things with his hands or his head that would give me musical instruction. The music wasn't just customized for the monologues, but also for the unique transitions between scenes, like going from the terminal to the plane in the episode called The Airport. Or from the cafe to Jerry's apartment in The Gum. 
or when the gang ends up in a sleepy Massachusetts town in the finale. This level of music customization was completely unheard of in Hollywood. Most TV shows have one main theme song and a handful of filler tracks that get reused over and over. But on Seinfeld, every single episode is unique. It would have saved them tons of time and effort to do things the normal way. But that perfectionism is exactly what makes Seinfeld feel so polished, even today. But the main theme only scratches the surface of Jonathan's work on Seinfeld. As the show progressed, Jonathan got to play around with a wide range of musical genres and tropes. These unique tracks underscore some of Seinfeld's most hilarious and memorable scenes. That's coming up after the break. When creating the music of Seinfeld, composer Jonathan Wolf took a revolutionary approach. For each episode, he built the music around Jerry's opening and closing monologues, and added unique transitions between scenes. This means that no two episodes are alike. Even the bass sound itself has changed over the course of the show. The Seinfeld bass progressed. It evolved. In fact, there were multiple Seinfeld basses throughout the show. It became a thing around my office for my staff to leave me gift bass samples to weave into Seinfeld cues. It made it more fun. And for Seinfeld connoisseurs, they note how the Seinfeld bass sound changed from season to season and from episode to episode sometimes. As for the actual melodies, the early season transition music tends to stay a lot closer to the melody of the main theme song, like this. In the later seasons, the bass fills get a lot wackier. There were also plenty of opportunities to branch out from the main theme, depending on what the script called for. About a week before an episode begins shooting, each production department receives a script so they can prepare, like wardrobes, props, set dressing. My music editor would read the script and database a to-do list of music pieces and or on-stage music assistants that this episode might need. Sometimes it's necessary to pre-produce music before they shoot the scenes. For example, when there's on-camera singing or dancing, I would need to create the music recordings far enough in advance so the other departments, the actors, dancers, choreographer, director, camera crew, had time to prepare for the shoot. For example, I had to create the instrumental tracks for Jason singing Believe It or Not, George Isn't at Home in advance for playback during the audience shoot. Believe it or not, George isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beep. Kramer's headbanging metal. Rochelle, Rochelle, the musical. Kramer's photo shoot of a semi-naked George. Okay. Come on, feel the beat. Also, in post is the time to create underscore music that heightens a dramatic or emotional scene or serves as a comedic device. In the hot tub episode, Elaine wanders the cold night streets, upset about her writer's block. The music is at first 
worried, and then at the end triumphant as she solves her Himalayan walking shoes assignment. My back aches, my heart aches, but my feet, my feet are resilient. Thank God I took off my heels and put on my Himalayan walking shoes. Or the sentimental music that plays when George and later Jerry watch happy couples on the pier and decide to get married. On Seinfeld, cinematic action music with chase scenes became a thing. Jerry chasing Newman and the cable guy chasing Kramer and the geriatric bike gang chasing George and the German tourists chasing Kramer. And that became a reoccurring Seinfeld comedy tradition. I always scored the Seinfeld chases in post as if they were serious, dramatic chases. Same with, you know, Jerry's dream sequence, Tarantino-esque death scene in the baby shower. Or in the Frogger when Jerry runs from the Lopper. You get the idea. There's these moments for me to do over-the-top, silly movie underscore. So there was music in pre-production, there was music in post-production, and sometimes my duties were on set. Because of the fast-paced filming schedule, Jonathan typically had just a single day to complete each episode. In general, for a normal episode, I liked one full calendar day between receiving an episode and delivering finished music. It was a hectic schedule, but all that work paid off. Seinfeld became a smash hit and stayed that way all the way through its final season. The 1998 finale had 76 million viewers, making it one of the most watched finales of all time. It's just such an interesting point in television history. It's like working on Mary Tyler Moore. Or going back if you worked on The Lucy Show. When a TV show captures a wide enough audience, it becomes a shared memory for a whole generation. A show's theme song can be a huge part of that. Often, the theme not only reflects the show's sensibilities, but also welcomes the audience by bridging the gap between the show's set and the viewer's living room. I didn't write it, but the Cheers theme does that so well. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. You really feel welcome to that show because of the theme. A TV theme like no other production element transports you into the world of the show itself. TV themes are woven into the fabric of our personal experiences, like the soundtrack of our lives. Familiar themes, like Seinfeld, serve as pop cultural touchstones marking times and places in our lives. For me, those lifeline markers include themes like Mission Impossible. Pink Panther. Beverly Hillbillies. 
kills, that is. For my kids, it's probably the Friends theme song. People hold warm, fuzzy connections to the TV themes in their memories. For the millions of Seinfeld fans out there, the show's music will always hold a special place in their hearts. So what's it like to work on something so monumental? It was great. I mean, the thing with Jonathan was he'd been in the business five or six years longer than me. I was a young guy. I was looking, you know, to break in and learn the ropes. And he was just so helpful. He started many careers. Everybody who worked for him after me and at the same time I was there has gone on to big Hollywood careers. And it's all because of his mentorship and his guidance. So he was really a giving person. He wasn't jealous of the success. He shared it. I'm happy that the Seinfeld music became a unique identifying signature for the show. It became Seinfeld's sonic brand. And that satisfies me a lot, that even apart from the show, even when there's no picture to go with it, they recognize it as being the Seinfeld theme. Twenty Thousand Hertz is hosted by me, Dallas Taylor, and produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team dedicated to making television, film, and games sound incredible. Find out more at defactosound.com. This episode was written and produced by Casey Emerling and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was sound edited by Soren Bejan. It was sound designed and mixed by Jai Berger and Colin Devarney. Special thanks to our guests, Jonathan Wolf and Steve Lack. Jonathan says he loves hearing from fans. The fans find me on my Instagram or Facebook. It's easy to find me. My handle is Seinfeld Music Guy. So if you're listening to this and you want to reach out to me, please do. I'll respond. And you can get in touch with Steve through his website, stevelack.com. Finally, I also love your feedback. You can reach out to me and the rest of the team through Facebook, Twitter, or by writing hi at 20k.org. Also, if you haven't checked out our website, you are really missing out. Be sure to check it out at 20k.org. Thanks for listening. That story came from 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that uncovers the secrets of the sonic world. On the show, they've also explored music sampling in hip-hop, whether dinosaurs really sounded the way they do in Jurassic Park, and the surprisingly controversial story behind the McDonald's I'm Loving It jingle. To hear these episodes and over 100 others, subscribe to 20,000 Hertz right here in your podcast player.